So in today's gospel, we have John the Baptist as the central figure, and he is preparing a way for Jesus. So the image that we get is of all of these obstacles in the way of getting to God. Um, and so, you know, we might even imagine visually these images as we need to get to this person or our family or, in this instance, Jesus. And there's all these mountains ahead of us that you can't just go around. And there's these deep valleys that make it impossible to get there. And so what we hear in today's first reading and in the gospel is God made a smooth path so that we could receive Jesus. And John the Baptist was a part of that. Naming the obstacles and pointing out a path and making it easy to get to Jesus. That's what John does. Really, that's what we're all called to do. We're all called to make it easier for others to get to Jesus. As parents, as friends, as co-workers, we are all called to prepare a way for Jesus, for other people to get to Jesus, remove any obstacles whatsoever. We call that evangelization. And so there's a bishop, the Bishop of Los Angeles, Archbishop Jose Gomez. He's the president of the USCCB, so he's the head of all the bishops in the country, you might say, um, or he's the head of the committee. And he wrote a letter about a month ago now, and I think this letter is very, very helpful for naming obstacles to Christ in our culture right now and kind of pro providing a path. I think this is kind of like a John the Baptist preaching moment here, led by the Archbishop. And I don't want to kill everybody here with a long reading of a letter and make everybody go to sleep. I'm going to try not to. I would normally hesitate to read something this long, but I really think this one's worth it. And so I am, I'm going to read Archbishop's letter that I think is, is very helpful and spoken as, as kind of in a, in a modern sense of John, like we have in the Gospel. He's speaking to a Congress of Catholics in Madrid, Spain, but it's delivered to everybody. My friends, you have asked me to address a serious, sensitive, and complicated topic. The rise of new secular ideologies and movements for social change in the United States and the implications for the church. An elite leadership class has risen in our countries that has little interest in religion and no attachments to the nations they live in or to local traditions or cultures. This group, which is in charge of corporations, governments, universities, the media, and in cultural and professional establishments, wants to establish what we might call a global civilization built on a consumer economy and guided by science, technology, humanitarian values, and technocratic ideas about organizing society.
In this elite worldview, there's no need for old-fashioned belief systems and religions. In fact, as they see it, religion, especially Christianity, only gets in the way of the society they hope to build. That is important to remember. In practice, as our popes have pointed out, secularization, which means non-religious, secularization means de-Christianization. For years now, there has been a deliberate effort in Europe and America to erase Christian roots of society and suppress any remaining Christian influences. In your program for this Congress, you allude to cancel culture and political correctness. And we recognize that often what is being canceled or corrected are perspectives rooted in Christian beliefs about human life and the human person, about marriage, the family, and more. In your society and mine, the space that the church and believing Christians are permitted to occupy is shrinking. Church institutions and Christian-owned businesses are increasingly challenged and harassed. The same is true for Christians working in education, healthcare, government, and other sectors. Holding certain Christian beliefs is said to be a threat to freedoms and even to the safety of other groups in our societies. One more point of context. I think history will look back and see that the pandemic did not change our societies as much as it accelerated trends and directions that were already at work. Social changes that might have taken decades to play out are now moving more rapidly in the wake of this disease and our society's responses. The new social movements and ideologies that we are talking about today were being seeded and prepared for many years in our universities and cultural institutions. But the tension and the fear caused by the pandemic and social isolation and with the killing of an unarmed black man by a white policeman and protests that followed in our cities, these movements were fully unleashed in our society. The name George Floyd is now known worldwide. But that is because for many people in my country, myself included, his tragedy became a stark reminder that racial and economic inequality are still deeply embedded in our society. We need to keep this reality of inequality in mind because these movements that we are talking about are a part of a wider discussion, a discussion that is absolutely essential about how to build an American society that expands opportunities for everyone, no matter what color their skin is or where they come from or their economic status. With that, let's turn to my next point. Here's my thesis. I believe that the best way for the church to understand the new social justice movements is to understand them as pseudo-religions and even replacements and rivals to traditional Christian beliefs. With the breakdown of Judeo-Christian worldview and the rise of secularism, political belief systems based on social justice or personal identity have come to fill the space that Christian belief and practice once occupied. Whatever we call these movements, social justice, 
wokeism, identity politics, intersectionality, successor ideology. They claim to offer what religion provides. They provide people with an explanation for events and conditions in the world. They offer a sense of meaning, a purpose for living, and the feeling of belonging to a community. Even more than that, like Christianity, these new movements tell their own story of salvation. To explain what I mean, let me try to briefly compare the Christian story with what we might call the woke story, or the story of, or the social justice story. The Christian story in its simplest form goes something like this. We are created in the image of God and called to be, and called to a blessed life in union with God and with our neighbors. Human life has a God-given talos, an intention, a direction. Through our sin, we are alienated from God and from one another, and we live in the shadow of our own death. By the mercy of God and his love for each of us, we are saved through the dying and the rising of Jesus Christ. Jesus reconciles us to God and our neighbors. He gives us the grace to be transformed into his image, and he calls us to follow him in faith, loving God and loving our neighbor, working to build his kingdom on earth, all in confident hope that we will have eternal life with him in the world to come. That's the Christian story. And now more than ever, the church and every Catholic needs to know this story and proclaim it in all of its beauty and truth. We need to do that because there is another story out there today, a rival salvation narrative that we hear being told in the media, in our institutions, by the new social justice movements. What we might call the woke story goes something like this. We cannot know where we came from but we are aware that we have interests in common with those who share our skin color or our position in society. We are also painfully aware that our group is suffering and alienated through no fault of our own. The cause of our unhappiness is that we are victims of oppression by other groups in society. We are liberated and find redemption through our constant struggle against our oppressors by waging a battle for political and cultural power in the name of creating a society of equity. Clearly this is a powerful and attractive narrative for millions of people in American society and societies across the West. In fact, many of America's leading corporations, universities, and even public schools are actively promoting and teaching this vision. The story draws its strength from the simplicity of its explanations. The world is divided into innocents, victims, allies, and adversaries. But this narrative is also attractive because, as I said earlier, it responds to real human needs and suffering. People are hurting. They do, they do feel discriminated against and excluded from opportunities in society. We should not forget this. Many of those who subscribe to these new movements and belief systems are motivated by noble intentions. They want to change conditions in society that deny men and women the rights 
and opportunities for a good life. Of course, we all want to build a society that provides equality, freedom, and dignity for every human person. But we can only build a just society on the foundation of the truth about God and the truth about human nature. This has been the constant teaching of the, our church and her popes for nearly 2,000 years now. Our emeritus pope, Pope Benedict XVI, warned that the eclipse of God leads to the eclipse of the human person. Again and again, he told us, when we forget God, we no longer see the image of God in our neighbor. Pope Francis makes the same point powerfully when he says, unless we believe that God is our Father, there is no reason for us to treat others as our brothers and sisters. That is precisely the problem here. Today's critical theories and ideologies are profoundly atheistic. They deny the soul, the spiritual, the transcendent dimension of human nature. Or they think that it is irrelevant to human happiness. They reduce what it means to be a human to essentially physical qualities. The color of our skin, our sex, our notions of gender, our ethnic background, or our position in society. No doubt that we can recognize in these movements certain elements of liberation theology. They seem to be coming from the same Marxist cultural vision. Also, these movements resemble some of the heresies that we find in church history, like the Manichaeans. These movements see the world as a struggle between the forces of good, the forces of evil. Like the Gnostics, they reject creation and the body. They seem to believe that human beings can become whatever we decide to make of ourselves. These movements are also Pelagian, believing that redemption can be accomplished through our own human efforts, without God. I would note that these movements are also utopian. They seem to really believe that we can create a kind of heaven on earth, a perfectly just society through our own political efforts. Again, my friends, my point is this. I believe that it is important for the church to understand and engage these new movements not on social or political terms, but as dangerous substitutes for true religion. In denying God, these movements have lost the truth about the human person. This explains their extremism and their harsh, uncompromising, and unforgiving approach to politics. And from the standpoint of the gospel, because these movements deny the human person, no matter how well-intentioned they are, they cannot promote authentic human flourishing. In fact, as we are witnessing in my country, these strictly secular movements are causing new forms of social division, discrimination, intolerance, and injustice. This leads me to my final set of reflections. My answer is simple. We need to proclaim Jesus Christ boldly, creatively, 
We need to tell our story of salvation in a new way, with charity and confidence, without fear. Without fear. This is the church's mission in every age and every cultural movement and moment. We should not be intimidated by these new religions of social justice and political identity. The gospel remains the most powerful force for social change that the world has ever seen. And the church has been anti-racist from the beginning. All are included in her message of salvation. Jesus Christ came to announce the new creation, the new man, and the new woman, given power to become children of God, renewed in the image of their creator. Jesus taught us to know and love God as our Father, and he called his church to carry out that good news to the ends of the earth, to gather from every race, every tribe, and every people the one worldwide family of God. That was the meaning of the Pentecost, when men and women from every nation under heaven heard the gospel in their own native language. That is what St. Paul meant when he said that in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. Of course, in the church we have not always lived up to our beautiful principles or carried out the mission entrusted to us by Christ. But the world does not need a new secular religion to replace Christianity. It needs you and me to be better witnesses, better Christians. Let us begin by us forgiving, loving, sacrificing for others, putting away spiritual poisons like resentment and envy. This is the attitude that we need right now, when our society is so polarized and divided. That does not mean we remain passive in the face of social justice, never. But we do need to insist that fraternity cannot be built through animosity or division. True religion does not seek to harm or humiliate to ruin livelihoods or reputation. True religion offers a path for even the worst sinners to find redemption. I edited a little bit of the letter. There's a little bit more to it, but that's almost 20 minutes right there. That I, I just, I, and I'll, I'll leave you with that. I think that the Archbishop's letter is very helpful. I think, again, that he names so many of these things in our culture right now, the things we're dealing with, that make it difficult for our young people, for the wider society, to find Christ and the true fullness of renewal of the gospel that Jesus has to offer. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of Archbishop Gomez, the Archbishop of L.A.'s letter and we thank you for his witness to you and his naming of the obstacles in the way to you and your son Jesus. We ask you to take his call of personal responsibility and our own call to personal holiness, not just by the things that we say, but by actually living out the gospel.
by allowing you to transform us through the liturgy, through the sacraments, through prayer. We are very thankful, Lord, for the shepherds that you have given us, like John the Baptist and like Archbishop Gomez in, the, in his words here, that have pointed out a way to your son and encourage and help us to grow and grow in holiness and spread the good news. Through Christ our Lord, amen. And let us take a few moments in silent prayer just to listen to and speak with the Lord in our hearts. <laughs> 